فيك تخسر شيء وانا مليت من عشرة نفسي Hi, I'm Lina Sergiatar and welcome to Belongings, a podcast where we talk about home and have conversations about the places that create, shape, and sometimes break us. Everybody, I'm so excited to share my conversation with Hassan Akad, filmmaker, producer, activist, author, photographer, an extraordinary human being all around. He's so inspiring when he talks about the power of owning your story, taking agency of your voice, and really expressing your experience as a refugee and displaced person. He's documented this in his memoir, Hope Not Fear, and he is also the producer of the film on Netflix that is trending worldwide called The Swimmers, which is the story of the Syrian swimmers Yusra and Sara Mardini, who have an incredible journey as well. Hassan is just a great person to talk about the idea of how do you find belonging in a new place and I was really moved by the concept of him finding belonging through service to the community. You'll learn so much more about this in our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Today we have on episode of Belongings, Hassan Akad, who's a friend of Karam Foundation, a friend of mine. I'm so proud and honored to call him my friend. Welcome, Hassan, to Belongings. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And to all of you who don't know Hassan, I want to let you know a little bit about this extraordinary human being that we're so proud to have today on Belongings. Hassan Akad is a documentary filmmaker and an activist living in London. He fled Syria in 2012, and after a punishing three-month journey across Europe, he arrived in London. Akad was a part of the team that created Exodus, Our Journey to Europe, which won the BAFTA for Best Factual Series or Strand in 2017. He has worked in film and TV production and for Choose Love, a refugee advocacy organization who are also our friends, until the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 when he took the job as an NHS hospital cleaner at Whips Cross Hospital in East London. He documented the pandemic through photographs of his colleagues posted on social media. His posts went viral and he has since been featured in Vogue, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, BBC News, and The Independent, and many more. Dua Lipa named Hassan her real-life unsung hero in 2020 for GQ magazine. Hope Not Fear, Finding My Way from Refugee to Filmmaker to NHS Hospital Cleaner and Activist, a memoir, is his first book. Welcome again, Hassan. Thank you. Thank you very much. So your story is a very long one, a long journey through geography, through different methods of how refugees traveled from Syria to Europe in uh, the last 10 years. A familiar story, but also a very unique one to every person who's made this journey. So I wanted to start by asking you if you could talk to our audience about your journey from leaving your home in Damascus to arriving in London. Yes, it was quite a journey. And before I tell you this, I remember back home in Damascus because American pop culture had a massive influence on us teenagers growing up in Damascus. So I remember watching the film Eurotrip with a bunch of my friends. And Eurotrip is a film about a bunch of American guys and girls traveling around Europe and, you know, being 
<laughs> being young and having fun and partying and, and doing all the things that you do when you're young. So I, I remember watching this and thinking, well, will my friends and I ever go on a Euro trip? <laughs> uh, little did I know that my wish will come true, but not in the way that uh, these guys have done their trip in the film. I grew up in Damascus. I was a photographer and an English teacher. And um, we had a, I mean, lived a pretty stable life. I come from a middle-class family, so we had a really nice flat in downtown Damascus, and I um, taught English at some of the best private schools. I had so many friends. I mean, I wouldn't go anywhere without bumping into at least 10 or 20 people that I knew. And uh, in a way, we sort of like Back in the noties, we sort of like we ran the city. We were the lads. We were the boys who like knew everybody and knew our way around. Uh, we were all like street smart, had so many dreams and hopes. And I was working towards a goal of I wanted to continue to teach and I wanted to continue to explore my creative aspect by doing more photography work. And um, I wanted to open a language center where I can tutor kids how to speak English. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> some of the some of the funny things that used to happen is that we used to go on a road trip to Beirut just so we can go to McDonald's and have a Big Mac and take a selfie with it and post it on Facebook because it was cool and sneak into gigs. I remember once there was Amr Diab, the Egyptian singer, performing in Shiraton Hotel. And we could have easily bought tickets, but, you know, being the naughty boys, we wanted, we, we would just like smuggle ourselves into the, <laughs> into, into the gig and uh, play cat and mouse with the police because of us driving around, going on Joe rides and then going to my friend's villa in the countryside to hide. And we were quite privileged. I mean, certainly I was like what, the 1%, you know, I, I've had a very, 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 very good life. And um, I'm one of five. So I have three sisters and a brother and my parents. So we all, as you know, in our culture, you don't leave the house until you, you're married. So we all stayed under the same roof. My brother worked in a bank. My dad had a pizza restaurant. I was a teacher. My sisters were studying. So yeah, it was just wonderful. You know, it was, the only thing that was missing from that life, I think, was the freedom of movement, traveling, going to Europe or going to Africa or Asia and like explore and, and, and see the world. We couldn't because of our passports. They couldn't take us anywhere. And um, obviously, I mean, back then I say that this was the only thing that was missing, but there was also, I mean, without diverting into politics, but also we were politically hijacked. So we didn't really know much about how our country is functioning or what's going on behind these closed doors. And uh, there was this parallel serial that existed in the shadows that we sort of tried our best to stay away from because of the rumors that we heard. And it was best for us to leave it behind and just live and have a, have a good time. Things obviously changed drastically after the Arab Spring sparked in Tunisia. And then suddenly everyone became switched on and everyone got involved. And it was like some sort of like a collective awakening that happened, fueled by what's happening in our neighboring countries and also fueled by this youth naivete where we thought we actually thought that we could yeah we can change things not knowing what we want to change things to because again we weren't politically taught but we wanted some sort of change things have gone really really badly and naturally none of us none of me and my best friends the people that i referenced before wanted to leave but then it became nearly impossible because there was military service for some of us, some of us got into trouble with the police, so got detained. I'm one of them. So this home, this Damascus that we basically ran and <laughs> we flourished in, very, very quickly moved from being a comfortable home to like a big prison. And, you know, as humans, when you're not comfortable, you move. 
that happens everywhere. If you live in, I don't know, New York, and you're not comfortable in the neighborhood that you're in because it's noisy or it's because there's high level of pollution, you just move to another neighborhood. <laughs> that's what humans do. And that's what we did. We just moved out of the country. But then that was the sad part of it is that we got dispersed. So people went places. I went to Lebanon. My best friend went to Egypt. Another one went to Turkey. And I tried my luck in Lebanon and then it didn't work. So I went to Egypt and it didn't work. And then I went to the UAE and I got a residency for like two and a half years. So I stayed there and then I went back to Turkey. And for three years, all of us were sort of like touring around our country of birth, hoping that things will be resolved soon and we can go back. But um, things kept getting worse. So then the decision was made that we have to go to Europe. It's not like my life was in danger in any of the Arab countries that I lived in, but I couldn't make any of them home. And um, for you to make a country your home, I think an essential part of turning a country into your home is to become a citizen, is to hold the country's passport and nationality. That's not possible in the Arab world. You can only get a, a temporary residency that you have to renew. And if you get into trouble, you might get deported and your visa will be cancelled. And it takes away the sense of security and stability from you because um, your situation is always in danger. So I did a basic Google search and I found that, you know, England, first of all, <laughs> I knew that England can, you know, this English is the language spoken English because I studied English literature back home. But I also found out that, you know, if you, if you come here and you are a law obeying citizen and um, you live for six or seven years, eventually you become a citizen. And that's to me, that's that was a big reason why I decided to come here. So I, I went on a journey that I walked in the footsteps of millions of people who were doing the journey back then, traveling from Turkey to Greece and then on a dinghy and then from Greece, traveling up north to Macedonia, from there to Serbia, from there to Hungary, to Austria, to Germany, to Belgium, to France. And from there, I waited for a couple of months trying to get into England and it didn't work. And then finally it worked after nine months. It wasn't sort of the Euro trip that my friends and I always talked about and dreamt of doing because it was in the back of lorries and it was on crowded dinghies and using fake documents. So it wasn't, um, <laughs> it wasn't all great, but it was our only option. Again, because uh, due to the lottery of birth, we were born with the wrong passports. <laughs> so <laughs> we couldn't just get on a flight from Turkey and then land in London and then claim asylum. We had to go through the back door. So yeah, so that's, that's my journey. I know that you have a lot, many more details that you've <laughs> documented this in your various films and projects and in articles and in your book. And so I encourage everybody to go in deep into Hassan's journey, because like he said, you followed in the footsteps of millions of people. And so, so many people took almost this exact journey and also pieces of it and had all their individual experiences. And it's heartbreaking because I know from the minute in Damascus, when you started participating in the protests and you paid a heavy price in terms of you were imprisoned, you were tortured, you had to flee. The journey across the sea is one that many people had to endure as well. And many people actually died. So it's just for me to hear this is always, I always think about all the other people that took on that same journey and many people lost their lives along the way. Lost their lives and lost and lost pieces of them as well. You lose a part of you that is really hard to rebuild because it's quite extraordinary for a group of people. And by here I'm saying Syrians or like a, like our population to go through what we had gone through because we had gone through a civilian uprising, which was empowering and incredible. And it was great. It turned into a, a civil war, which turned into a proxy war. And then genocides and slaughters and people losing their loved ones and people losing their businesses and their homes and then exile. So 
I think it's not unique to Syrians. Obviously, other diasporas have done the same things or even worse. We had our Palestinian neighbors. We had our Iraqi neighbors who, you know, endured similar hardships. But it is incredibly difficult what we had gone through. And I think it's a testimony to the fact that I look at my friends right now and they're like settled in their new homes and they've built new lives. It's a testimony to their resilience, the fact that despite everything that we've gone through, they managed to find homes somewhere else. And it's very unfortunate and it's quite depressing. You've got a generation of kids who didn't go to schools. You've got insane levels of traumas and mental health problems that was inflicted on millions and millions of people. So that's that's a really hefty bill that we had to pay. But yeah, I mean, life goes on, but it's completely out of control. We didn't bring this upon ourselves. It was enforced on us. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I want to go back to, you know, the beginning of your story, which for me, it's so powerful because I think it's also a forgotten part about the Syrian revolution and pre-revolution times is about when you even talk about the parallel Syria. I connect to that so deeply because that was my life in Aleppo as well. I was in part of that parallel Syria where we're very privileged. We have a life of having access to what so many others never had access to. But even within all of that privilege, there was that thing that was missing, which was freedom. I mean, I was actually I'm an American citizen, so I always had the passport so I could move around. But you still felt that while you're in Syria, there's a limit. There's all of that, the beautiful things you talked about in terms of your neighborhood and your family and being from a place like Aleppo or like Damascus and anywhere in Syria where you are really rooted into the land itself versus your actual political reality and being young and not kind of, you said it so clearly about wanting change, but not knowing what that was, but knowing that change was needed. Mm. That spark that happened during the Arab Spring is like, this is the chance. I was not there. So I watched all of this from afar, really with in so much awe, because what you all were doing on the streets was something that we never thought we would ever see in our lifetime. And it was extreme bravery. And nobody ever thought that the result was going to be what happened. But I don't think people remember where those actual roots were. And there were people like you, people that had that stability in terms of a job and in terms of a home and in terms of, you know, a real life that you were somebody that had options, but you still took to the streets and risked it all for that concept of freedom. Absolutely. And it's again, it wasn't a question of whether we should go on the streets and start protesting or not. When you see your country, women and men being shot and detained and tortured, you have to do something. It's not a yes or no thing. You have to. You have to stand up for your fellow human and do something about it. And the problem that we've had in, for generations in Syria is because, you know, it's, it's one political party, the Ba'ath Party, that has been ruling for the last five decades. We had a pantomime of a democracy. So while we do have a, a parliament and members of, of the parliament, and we do go and vote for them, but it was all, <laughs> you know, the country is run by five or six generals alongside the president. So we lived in someone else's backyard. That's how I always looked at it, where we were allowed to have fun and party and dance and do the things that we want. But there was a glass ceiling that you can't go over. And we were growing up. I mean, it's pretty sad that we were taught how to use a weapon when we were 14 years old, but we were never taught about our rights. The first time I knew about my rights is when I put them in a, in a, in a search engine and <laughs> when I arrived to England. What are my rights as a human? I was forced to memorize the quotes of the ex-president Hafez al-Assad. And genuinely, these things like you have to memorize these exact words because that's where you will be tested. But, you know, no one had ever told me that I have the rights 
to protest or I have the right to join any political party or I have the right to freedom of speech. None of that. None of that. We, again, we, we lived in Al Assad's backyard. And um, for a long time, I wasn't aware of that growing up because I was indoctrinated to be a supporter of this system. I remember going on protests in support of the president when we were kids because it was all, you know, our teachers would come to our class and come on, we're going on a march to support the president because something happened in Lebanon. And we would all carry the same flags and the president's posters and we're all chanting, you know, like goats. <laughs> and that was our life. But suddenly, again, suddenly, instantly, social media played a massive role, obviously. The internet and social media played a massive role. And seeing people protesting in countries that are very close to us, again, I could see that everyone was having this collective identity crisis. Because part of me, I'm like, damn, like, you know, this is our country and this is our president who is the only president we've had. So What's the alternative? But then I can go on Facebook and watch activists in Cairo on Tahrir Square talking about change and talking about democracy and talking about, you know, end of police state. And that looked promising to me. You know, that looked amazing. And that's hence why tens of thousands of young and old Syrian men and women took to the streets because it had to be done. And it's a tricky one because now I ask myself, was it the right thing that we've done? And I don't, I still don't know the answer to that because uh, we're talking about something that happened 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And if I knew what will unfold as a result of what we did, I wouldn't have taken part, to be honest, because I think, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of deaths and millions of, of displaced and the countries, the society has completely collapsed. So to me personally, I think it's pretty selfish if I can sit here in the comfort of my home in London and tell, yes, we've done the right thing. We didn't do anything wrong, but we didn't know who we were dealing with. And I remember my parents telling me that very clearly because my parents, they were around when the massacre in Hama took place. They were around when the massacre in Tedmore prison took place. They know how far they can go. I remember my dad very clearly saying, like, you don't know, like, you don't know who you're messing with. And I think, yes, we didn't. We didn't know how vicious and how barbaric and how low they are willing to descend. Absolutely. I think this is, again, you're telling a story that millions of Syrians and, and people around the region understand it very clearly 11 years after the Arab Spring and really the dreams and the hopes of so many young people and old people across the region of just having what you just said, the basic human rights. And I think that's a forgotten piece. It's such an essential piece of the Arab Spring, but it's forgotten in the midst of the wars and everything that happened and unfolded. And like you said, something that was absolutely not the people's fault or deserved, and it's still ongoing. And that's what people remember and think about when they think about Arab Spring in such a negative light. But it is that at the basic level, people demanding their human rights. Yeah, absolutely. So moving ahead to talk about home, because this is what this podcast is about. <laughs> and I know that there are several layers of home and belonging, and we want to talk about the different facets. I asked you to map your home. And so you drew a map before this podcast started. Yes. And we'll be sharing the drawing as well. Could you tell us about your map of home? My map is a drawing of a sunflower, a terrible drawing of a sunflower, because I'm not really good at drawing, because I like sunflowers. And so the sunflower is me. And we see a small sunflower beneath the sunflower. Under the ground, we see big roots. And one of the roots takes you to Damascus, where I'm from, and one of the routes takes you to London. And the idea behind that is because 
It's something that we say, like, if you try to trace your roots, where you're from. And I think my physical roots obviously are from the old city of Damascus. That's where my parents are from and that's where I'm from. But uh, recently, I think the idea of home to me is no longer this rigid, static place. I think it's more flexible. I think we carry home with us. And I certainly, I mean, having lived here for the past seven years and recently became a citizen, So to me, I'm like, I have roots here. So I have roots in Damascus and I have roots here. And, you know, I think to me, Damascus and London go hand in hand when it comes to home. I love that. And I love the the unknown roots as well. Yeah. In the future. (laughs) So you mentioned that you were an English teacher and also a photographer even before leaving Syria. And I wanted to ask you about that creative side of your life, about photography and then eventually filmmaking. How did that come about and how did that become such an essential part? of what you do now in terms of making films and documentaries and storytelling through images? I think I inherited it from my dad. I remember growing up, I mean, when we were little kids, my dad had a, had an analog camera and he also had a video camera and he used to document every movement of us. So I was always fascinated by my dad doing this. So when I grew up and my dad was a, <laughs> still is like a, you have to work and save money if you want to buy something for yourself. So I remember taking the first job and saving enough money so I can buy a camera. And I went to Lebanon and I bought a semi-professional camera, a Canon one with a good lens. And I came back and it was the time during when Facebook was still very popular. And I was the go-to person for anyone wanted a profile picture. Because <laughs> what I love is I love photographing people. I really like portraiture. I like portrait photography and I like also street photography. I used to spend days just walking around Damascus, photographing people, going about doing their normal things. That is something that I really, really liked doing. And it came, I think, from my interest in storytelling, because I've always liked stories. And I think photography is telling stories. You're telling a story visually, not linguistically. So I always had a camera around, always photographing my friends, always photographing people, like little corners, I find beauty in the most unimaginable places ever. So that naturally, when I think of where I am right now, the fact that I taught English for five years, and you know, when you're teaching, you're telling stories, and I did photography. So these two skills, I think they both morphed into doing what I'm doing right now is working in film and TV. I still do photography. I do. I mean, I no longer obsess with the quality of the lens that I'm carrying or the camera that I'm carrying because my work when I was documenting my colleagues in the hospital and during COVID, I was photographing them on, a, on an iPhone X. And some of these pictures ended up in the National Portrait Gallery in London, which is a very prestigious place for any photographer to, to have their work displayed in. And when I did the journey, which I told you about earlier, I had a desire to document it because I, I knew that we are going through extraordinary times. It's not every day that you travel thousands of miles to find a new home. That's something that doesn't normally happen. When you go to school and people ask you, what do you want to do in the future? You never say, oh, I'm going to go on a dinghy and then I'm going to hide in a truck and then I'm going to buy a fake passport. You never say that. So I knew that it's something that is probably never going to happen again. I hope so. So that's why I documented it. That's where the desire came from. It's from to document this life-changing event. And also because I wanted to take some authorship of how we tell our stories. Because since I've come here, I've noticed that a lot of Western filmmakers and authors are telling our stories, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but I feel like we should tell our own stories. So yeah, doing that film and being part of that series, which got a lot of attention and sort of like gave me a career in reality. I started working on more documentaries. I said, start over. So I had to 
stuff as a researcher and then I became an assistant producer and then I started producing and then recently I've been directing. And yes, I like it. I love the job. I can't do a 10 to 6 job and I love traveling and I love meeting new people and I love telling stories. So filmmaking is basically all of that. I love all of that. And uh, (laughs) we'll talk a little bit more about the films that you've been making and your projects. But before that, you'd mentioned about your work in the COVID unit as an NHS cleaner at the hospital. So in 2020, the pandemic started and you decided to become a cleaner in the COVID ward. I wanted to ask about why you decided to do what you did. Mainly because I lost my mind. <laughs> and as a result, as a result of what happened in the past, I have terrible claustrophobia. So I can't be confined in one space. I really don't like being in one space. So I'm going to be very honest and say that I wanted to find a job just so I could leave my apartment. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, obsessing over the news and you know, I told you, like, I grew to like London, you know, London sort of like England gave me a second chance in life. And, and it's not the country, it's not England that gave me, but it's like the people who I met here, they, they were all nice and I have a new community. So, so it felt like when the pandemic started that we are in crisis mode. And naturally, I am more inclined to think of solutions in times of crisis. So there isn't much that can be done. But I read over the news that there was a call out for cleaners because of NHS staff were contracting virus and and falling ill as a result. So I said, yeah, I think it would be an honor if during this time I I do something. I go on the front. I hate using military words, but like it was it was the front line being in a hospital. And the hospital was seven minutes to walk from me, so it would it would be the hospital that I would be taken to if something were to happen to me. It's the hospital that is serving my community, and that's why I took the job. But I mean, I wasn't like this, you know, hero, selfless person who just wanted to help. No, like I wanted to help myself too, because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that that was important. <laughs> I mean, I think that you were doing a lot more than that. And I know that your your photographs actually impacted so much and you're actually reporting and your social media posts shed such a big highlight onto what's actually going on inside these COVID wars at a time where a lot of us, we were in our at home and we didn't have an actual window into what was happening for people like you and others. And most others actually did not have a platform, did not have a voice, did not have a microphone or social media platform to be able to express what was going on in these wards from the point of view of the cleaners and the essential workers that were happening, uh, mm. that were there uh, serving others in this very dire time and a dangerous time. And so one of the videos that you made directed towards Boris Johnson went viral. You made it in your car after a particularly difficult shift. Can you tell us about that post and why you made it and uh, what you were feeling at the time and also your reaction to when it went viral? I So when I took the job, I wanted to clean. You know, I didn't want to campaign. I didn't want to become an activist. I didn't want to take pictures. I just wanted to disinfect the world and clean. That was purely my intention. But then I realized that all my colleagues, 18 of them in the world, were born outside of England. They were all immigrants. So I, I found that very interesting that, you know, like a group of people from Ghana and Nigeria and the Caribbean and Spain and, and Syria and, and Italy and, and the Philippines were all in one ward in London working together. So it's sort of like, you know, that thing, again, because I, you know, I... Because I'm a creative person, I thought about it, I was like, that's an amazing story. You know, like it's a story of diversity, of people coming together in the hardest of times and from every corner of the world. So that's why I started taking their pictures. So I, I started posting literally just portraits of my colleague 
with their permission, obviously, and then writing a very short caption, just saying who they are, where they're from, what their hobbies are. And uh, that was literally all I did. And people love these posts because I was highlighting the value that immigrants bring to England. And this is something that I have been doing professionally for the past seven years. Everything that I do, it falls under the realms of advocacy and raising awareness. And people love these posts and they went viral. And then the government decided to issue a, a bereavement scheme where basically anyone who dies in a hospital while working in the pandemic, their families get indefinite residencies if they are immigrants. And then the government decided to exclude cleaners and porters and healthcare systems, basically the people who needed the most, because that's in Britain, if you walk into in any hospital, you see that people who do these jobs are normally black and brown people. So I was a bit shocked of that because I felt like, you know, <laughs> it's, you, this is not how you treat people who are risking their lives and their families' lives. You should actually you know, be reassuring, you should protect them, you should be out there supporting them, not telling them if you die, your parent, your family is getting nothing. Unlike the doctors and the nurses, because you are of not that much value to us. So I felt like I had to do something. So in my head, I was thinking that this is very unjust and it's very unfair. And I feel like anyone who would know about this would not condone it. So that's why I wanted to, to, to put a video out. So I just sat in the car and recorded a message to the prime minister and just literally in two minutes saying, hi, it's Hassan. I took this job and I just found out that you did this. And I just told the story, basically. And within four hours, the government announced a U-turn and saying, yes, we will include everyone. I mean, it wasn't just my video that did that. Lots of people were talking about it and there were a lot of politicians addressing it. But I think I sort of like, gave it a tiny push by making it go viral on Twitter. <laughs> and yes, that felt great. I felt really good that I, I was able to do that because that made me feel like I belong here. It made me feel like, you know, I am part of this society because this society has given me a lot, but I feel like I've gone full circle and I've given the society back. So yeah, that's how it went. <laughs> I mean, it's really an incredible story and an incredible thing because it reminds me of two things. First of all, I mean, I don't know if you feel about this the same way is that while you're just speaking, it just shows, you know, I know that people do a lot of activism across the world and, you know, in America, we're doing a lot of activism for different causes. We have a lot of causes right now here in the US. <laughs> we're in crisis mode here too. And not every time you do something, you'll find a result. But yours is a very rare account where you did something and there was a result and it wasn't just you, it was a lot of other people as well. But when you put that against, you know, when we go back to the beginning of our conversation and the protests, it just almost shows you again that um, our voices matter and you found that your voice matters somewhere outside of Syria. And that's where really a lot of heartbreak does come in because it justifies a lot of what we were trying to do at the beginning of the revolution and the voices of the Arab Spring. And it shows that people do have power in their voices. And that's probably what the scariest part of it was for the authoritarian regimes that everybody was fighting. But this, what you did was actually very remarkable in terms of that reversal is very interesting to me as well. It's one of our really core concepts of the work that we do with Syrian refugee youth is that idea of how do you find belonging within serving your community where you are and that you find that belonging where you are and through service and not necessarily only saying this is where I'm from or even where I'm going to. It's where you are right now. And I think what you did was an action that really shows that in very like clear form. I mean, I wouldn't even have thought that you would say that this is what made you feel like you belong. But I wanted to ask you about 
you had said in an interview, this concept of this was a reversal, almost a reversal of power and the voices of power, because, and it goes back to what you were talking about in terms of authenticity and be, and people being able to tell their own stories in within these portraits and within this work that you were able to kind of reverse who speaks and who is giving the flow of information from the people that were always at the bottom of the pyramid of power to the top. So can you talk a little bit about what you meant by that? I purely meant is that for a very long time, I felt that, you know, we, I'm speaking as a Syrian displaced person who lives in exile. I always felt like so many people are speaking on our behalf and advocating for us. And I didn't feel like I had a seat at that table. All these meetings and all these conversations were taking place and uh, people were making all these decisions. And I didn't feel like we didn't have enough rep representation of us Syrians who had to go through what we just talked about. And um, I felt like our voice was missing. So by doing what I did, in a way, I felt like it sort of like restored my confidence and my self-esteem that actually we can get stuff done. We have a very strong voice. We have so many tools at our disposal and we have these platforms. So what is stopping us from utilizing these all of what I mentioned above to address the issues that we care about. And again, I'm not criticizing people who are lobbying for us. I think they're doing an incredible thing. Anyone who is not Syrian and who, you know, speak for us and highlight our issues or like keep this conversation going, their work is much appreciated. But I feel like we should exist in these discussions. We should have a seat at that table. We should represent ourselves. And that's something that we can do in the in your sector. So that is why, Lena, having you run Karam Foundation is an incredible thing. You know, you're someone from Aleppo who understands the culture. You've got the lived experience. You are very aware of your privilege. You said, I've always had an American passport, so I've always could, could travel. But I love that you run this NGO. And that's why I love someone like Wad al-Khatib, who is directing her own film, telling her own story for summer. I love what uh, a lot of activists in Germany are doing, trying to get these officers from the Assad regime who escaped to Germany. They are getting them, you know, convicted for the war crimes that they committed, sent to prison. We have creatives who are writing books, making movies. We have artists who are doing things because that that says a lot about us you know that's we <laughs> what we are as 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 a collective are able to, to do and that is important that we have this complete authorship of our work yeah i really think it's very very powerful and i think we need all of the voices it's important but our voices are very important and uplifting the voices of syrians themselves and like you said the people with the lived experiences are is so important and so this brings us to the question about hope not fear i love the title your memoir is very powerful and i wanted to ask you about you so you took all of the visual work and you poured it into a written piece of work <laughs> how was it how was it writing your memoir and and uh, what are the takeaways from that experience? The takeaway from that experience is that I would never write a book again. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's extremely difficult. And it's, it's actually, I mean, I had someone who was doing most of the writing for me. I had Rebecca Lay, who was my co-writer. Without her, I couldn't have written this book. So I had that all of that help. But it was incredibly debilitating to write about something which is 
Hope Not Fear is not a trauma porn sort of book where you just read about trauma and it doesn't exploit the difficulties and exploit the traumas. It also highlights the funny bits and, you know, it's it's a human story with the ups and downs. But um, it was really, really, really hard to get it done and to publish it. I mean, because I was working on a film and I was writing this book and I was also going through a breakup, like a terrible breakup and so many things were happening. So it, it was hard. It was incredibly difficult. But the end result was, you know, it was fulfilling. I loved that there is a piece of me that exists in people's houses right now on their shelves and, you know, in their bags. And I still get messages every day from people who have read the book and saying that how much they are inspired by the story and how much, you know, they've learned and how much they can relate. And most importantly, how much they can connect. Because I want, I wrote a book so people can connect to it. I find it really difficult to read because I don't find some books accessible and I wanted to write an accessible story. I wanted to write an accessible book. It's, 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 it's certainly a very interesting process. And I loved, you know, I had, you know, I could, I can say whatever I want. So I, I had total authorship. It's my books, my story. And, um, again, I'm not sure I would do it again, but I have no regrets in a very strange way too. It was, it was very cathartic to write it. It helped me make sense of the past and it helped me make sense of everything that has happened in the last 10 years. And uh, yeah, it's very funny. Like we're now, when you were doing the introduction, like Hassan is an author who, I'm like, bloody hell, yes, I published the book. Yeah, you are. <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so of a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. mean, do you have any favorite stories from readers or people? Like I remember when we talked about your book earlier, I think last year when it first got published yeah. and uh, you had sent a copy to your family or friends. How, what kind of feedback did you get from your book? My parents never read it, which sort of like breaks my heart. But I also understand why they wouldn't read it. I mean, if I ever have a son and my son writes a memoir or a daughter, I'm going to read every single draft. But I feel like for my parents, it's just it's too close to home. And they said, we're not going to read it. So I sort of made peace with that. My friends were all, you know, like they were all <laughs> incredibly proud. My closest friends said that it felt like we are publishing our own story. You know, we are writing our own memoir. I had some very, you know, some really random, like every day I get a, a random text or an email from someone saying, I don't know how to, or someone says, I cried throughout the book. And I'm like, gosh, I'm so sorry. What's your I, apologize. I apologize. And then they're like, no, 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 it was a good cry. I'm happy for you. I'm like, okay, great. But, you know, a lot of people appreciated. They felt like they are reading a story that could have been their neighbors or their boyfriend or their uncle or their cousin's story. And that's exactly what I wanted to say. And that's how I wanted to start to listen. Because for a while, the way we were portrayed in the media as if like, you know, we are this population of people that existed in this faraway land where there was so much blood and destruction and fire. And no one like really mentions what happened any of that. So that's why we were always portrayed as victims. And while I am a victim in my own story, but I've also, I sort of tried to humanize my story by, by mentioning the funny bits. I mentioned, I talk about the first time I had sex as someone who's growing in a Muslim conservative house and how I felt. I mentioned, you know, going with my friends and smoking a spliff. I don't know if that's going to make it to the episode, but anyways, I'm just going to keep on saying it. But I mentioned you know, I mentioned about my relationship with God. I talked about going to Friday prayers. I talked about the role of my dad in the family. I made it a universal story. It's a human story. And that's what people appreciated the most. 
Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's, you know, those are the powerful parts of the story <laughs> of, of like building out that full human experience because, yeah. and that, like, you know, people think of refugee or Syrian or Palestinian or Iraqi, like being as like a separate kind of human, sometimes not even <laughs> exactly. human. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy. Um, so like, I really appreciate it. Is, will it become a film itself, a movie or no? Is that in the works? It's never going to become a movie, no. no. Okay. I think it should exist in the book. And, uh, and there are so many other incredible stories to be told. I feel like my story has been given enough air. <laughs> Actually, that the next my next question is specifically about this, because I read also in another interview that you'd said this sentence that really moved me. And you'd said, people always want to see you as some symbol of pain. And so I wanted to ask you, do you ever get tired of telling your story or being defined as refugee or a displaced person or activist or all these things that you're doing? I sort of like struggled with it for a long time, but I was the one who put myself in that situation because my friends who I've traveled with, one of them got a job at Amazon since when we arrived and has been working for Amazon since then. The other became an electrical engineer. The other is working as a technician in a, in a TV station. I made a decision to put myself out there and to share my story. And it's sort of like, not just for the sake of sharing my story, it's because I know how advocacy works and I know how I can use that to call for action. I can raise money. I mean, in the past six or seven years, I've, I've raised hundreds of thousands of pounds for causes by being out there and by speaking out, by sharing a story. And obviously, there is a, there's a side effect. The side effect is that you become defined by your story. So while we work really hard in our healing time, we work really hard not to be defined by our trauma, but then people unintentionally start defining us by our trauma. So for a few years... People will say, oh, yeah, he's Hassan. Yeah, he's this guy who was on a boat and he's a refugee. And that's why writing my story in the book, Hope Not Fear, was important because I want to talk about all the things that people usually leave out when they think of me. <laughs> and there is no shame with being displaced. I think it's a testimony to our resilience, the fact that we hit rock bottom and then we moved somewhere else and started again and we're flourishing again. It says a lot about us and about our character and about what we are capable of doing. I still do refer to myself as a, as a refugee, but what I don't like is for sometimes, sometimes it happened once or twice, I would go to an event or like I would go on TV because I every time there's something around immigration here, some broadcasters have me to, to, to give an opinion and they asked me before the interview, so what's, what you would like your title to be? Uh, and I'll be like, filmmaker. And then I'll go back and I'll watch the recording and they've written Syrian refugee. And I'm like, why are you doing that? <laughs> well, I find it really odd, you know, like it's, what are, you what are you trying to do? There's, again, there's, I'm not ashamed of being one. No, I mean, I've written on my book that I'm a refugee, but um, a lot more than that. I mean, I can relate to that in terms of our work in that this still happens, but it used to happen a lot more around when the war was really raging in Syria in 2015, 2016, with the exodus of people who took journeys like yours, and I would be invited to be on the media. And when we would talk about our work, it was too hopeful. People didn't mm. want to hear about innovation and creativity for Syrian refugees. It was almost like this give is me not trauma. something. Yeah. Give me trauma. Give me the kids in the camps in the mud. Give me all of the like. Give me the the suffering. People wanted to yeah. see that, 
And I would always reject it because it's like, this exists. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but also this is not what defines people. It definitely does not define children and young people. And you have to uplift dignity and people have dignity. They didn't lose their dignity. We just show them in a way that's undignified to show, you know, that's how we build empathy is that I have to see the suffering. And it's not to disguise it or hide it, but that's not the only face of a human. Yeah. And that's why that goes back to my point about having ownership of how we tell our stories and being in control of the narrative. Because I think we can choose to talk about our trauma. I think we can be very generous by sharing the awful things that happened to us. But that's a choice. That It's not something that I wanted to be forced on me. Like, come on, go back to your darkest memories and tell me about them because that will get me views. No, that's not, none of that shit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm with you. So we want to know, what are you working on? What are the yes. projects? Uh, what's, what's, what's on your plate right now? Yes, I spent around 18 months working on an upcoming Netflix movie called The Swimmers. It's the story of Sarah and Yusra Mardini, the two Syrian sisters who fled from Syria to Berlin. Yusra became an Olympian swimmer and Sarah started volunteering on a rescue boat. So I worked as a producer on the film alongside an incredible director called Sari Husseini, who I've learned so much from and was an amazing, like, you know, an amazing boss slash friend slash mentor. And I recently took a job producing a film about Amal, the big puppet that has been walking <laughs> around the world. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a funny film, that one. It's, we're still trying to figure out how we're telling the story, but I've been doing that. I'm working with Choose Love as a creative director. So uh, I'm making charity films and everything that I do is somehow around displacement and migration because the charity film that I made, it was for a charity called The Bike Project and it, it went really, really well. I made a music video for an artist called Anne-Marie. She's huge and she's, she wrote a song with Ed Sheeran and they wanted a story for the music video. And I, I made a music video about a young woman from Aleppo who lost her leg in a bombing and then came here and became a runner. So I told her story in the music video. I'm trying really hard to get more stories of displacement into pop culture, because that's how you reach other audiences. So pop culture, like movies, podcasts, music videos. I got a commission from the BBC to write a script for an idea that my friend and I pitched. It's a really funny concept about, it's not funny, it's scary, but it's about, you know, it's about the rise of fascism in England and um, this group of people who decide to fundraise and buy a boat and go stop the dinghies from crossing the channel. And then a lot of drama unfolds. So you're going to start doing that soon. I've met an incredible guy from Sri Lanka. There's also something that I'm trying to get outside the Syrian circle because I feel like due the, to the hierarchy in this world, we get more attention than other diasporas. So I met this guy who's Sri Lankan, Tamil Sri Lankan, and had gone through unimaginable things. And he's gone in his life on a very, very incredible journey in England, coming here without speaking a word in English and navigating the hostile environment for seven years without any status to him becoming a lawyer and taking the government to court and suing them and winning. So it's an incredible story of someone who goes full circle. And I've just finished writing it and I'm trying to make it as a TV show, so I'm trying to get people involved. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's, <laughs> that's that's what I've been working on. Yeah, 
It's so interesting and really powerful. And we can't wait to see all of these pieces. We were involved with Thanks. Amal as well. And I'm really interested in seeing this film. I want yeah. to see the swimmers, all of these pieces. So you've been really, really busy. And uh, we just love all of the work that you're doing. And Thank I you. It's very, very I love the work that you're doing. I mean, I'm not gassing you up now intentionally, uh -huh. but Kenan Foundation has a, has a very special place in my heart. As someone who used to be a teacher, And as someone who, who believes that uh, rebuilding a society starts from the classroom, I genuinely think that what you do is priceless and um, always in awe of you and your work. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hassan. So we've taken up a lot of your time. I'm going to go into the rapid fire quick questions uh, sure. before we close out our conversation today. So my first question is to complete this sentence, home is where? London for now. London for now. Um, the second question I'm actually having, you know, you're one of the, I don't think I'm going to have always people that have been displaced as the guests of belongings. I have all different kinds of people on. And so this question I modified for you because it was a conceptual question for guests, which is if you had to leave home and take one belonging, what it would be. And you've actually went through that several times. So what is an object that you've taken with you when you've had to leave home as a memory or something that you wish you could have taken? I wish I could have taken some of my mom's cooking. That would have been very handy along the way. <laughs> um, I mean, funny enough, <laughs> there are so many things that I wish I took with me back then. But then I realized that luckily I didn't take them because my bag sank in the Aegean when we were crossing the sea. So they would have, <laughs> they, they, they would have, they would have been in the bottom of the sea right now. But um, I, Honestly, I no longer have any attachment to objects whatsoever before, because of how many times I have moved places so far. So I think if I'm being a bit, you know, abstract, I think I wish I was more present around my family before I left, because these are the moments that I think are irreplaceable. Absolutely. I think a lot of people would connect to that. Yeah. And you don't have to be a refugee to connect to that at all. <laughs> My next question is, what's one piece of advice that you would give a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place? Community. I think community. Find community. Find, make friends. I know it's hard, but try, go out there and it can be very lonely, especially if you are detached from your loved ones and from your network of support. But people can really make any place feel so much better. So find your community. You call many places your home or several places your home. We would like to ask you for a list of three unexpected places that people must visit in the place that you call your hometown. Amazing. Yes, wonderful. Definitely Glastonbury Festival. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the biggest music festival in Europe. It's a bit insane and out of order. But I remember standing by the pyramid stage when I first arrived to England. The pyramid stage is the biggest stage in the festival. And I was watching Coldplay, surrounded by around 100,000 people. And Coldplay, they were singing Fix You. And they got to the part where they say, tears stream down your face. And I just stood there. I lost all my friends. I stood there surrounded by strangers. And everyone hugged each other. And I know this sounds very hippie, but I genuinely felt like <laughs> in that moment, I was like, I belong here. <laughs> so Glastonbury Festival. And the Somerset Cider Farm in Somerset in Borough Hill. It's my friend's cider farm. And it's the most beautiful place on earth. It's 200 acres of apple orchards. And they've got a log 
cabin in the middle of the farm and a little pond. And it's the most peaceful, most incredible, beautiful place ever. And um, a third place is this coffee shop in West London where they make really good knafe. I think the world is so much better with knafe in it. They make knafe medlua. It's phenomenal. And it's a must go. The place is called Levant, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously now we really know that you're serious. (laughs) Finally. I love that's an amazing list. It's yeah. one of my dreams to go to Glastonbury. I mean, I I love Coldplay. I actually saw Coldplay yeah. recently in Chicago. But it's my amazing. dream to see Radiohead at Glastonbury. Oh wow! Yeah, that's, that's on the bucket list. Um, and my next question is: What dish tastes like home to you? Oh my God! So what dish tastes like home? Or what dish is actually home? Because if the question is what dish is home, then definitely Ebra vine leaves. But it has to be the way that my mom makes it because it will have a dangerous amount of garlic uh, with a lot of layers of meat and chicken and fat. So that's, <laughs> I mean, I think that says a lot about us. If that's, that's for me, that's home. But that's definitely like, Kebra to me is, is heaven. But here, I mean, don't get me started on British cuisine because I mean, and I want to bring to your attention the difference when I try to, take the piss out of my British friends. I say, we made hummus, which is made of tahini, is made of chickpeas, garlic, olive oil, and lemon, all of these in- amazing ingredients. And they made marmite, which is literally made of yeast. <laughs> I don't even know what that, what that tastes like. <laughs> oh, oh my God, you, you never want to try it. But yeah, Yabra is, is home. Yabra is definitely home. Yeah. <laughs> my last qu- my last quick fire question is what is a book or books that you love and have recommended to your friends the most? A book that I really love and I've recommended my friends the most is uh, 40 Rules of Love by Elif Shafak. It's such a beautiful book and another book which I recently read and I thought it was incredible is a book called The Body Keeps the Score and it's a book about mental health and you know, what happens in these mad brains of ours. And it really helped me connect the dots and it helped me because you know, I am on a journey of becoming better and, you know, healing. And yeah, it was an incredible book. Yeah. So these two books. Really amazing books. I haven't read The Body Keeps the Score, but I have it. And I loved uh, 40 Rules of Love. So I really, you know, echo yeah. your recommendations and appreciate them. <laughs> Hassan, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. I'm so happy that we know each that other and, you know, we watch everything that you do. And it's really, it's always great to speak with you. And I'm so excited to share your story with the world through this podcast. And I'm really excited that you're going to be one of our first episodes. I thank also you. wanted to say that the sunflower metaphor, it really does suit you, that idea. The sunflower is such a resilient flower and it always keeps <laughs> on giving and growing and expanding and has so many seeds. And so like it's kind of like related to your work and all the different kinds of pieces of work that you're doing. And we're going to be cheering you on always uh, along thank the you. way thank with you. all of your projects. Thank you. Very kind of you. It was great chatting to you. Wasn't that such an inspiring conversation with Hassan? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Next up, I talked to Abdelaziz, a Syrian refugee teen who lives in Istanbul and attends Karim House. He also talks about his difficult journey from Syria to Turkey and how hard it's been for him to find belonging in a new place. Let's listen in. 
We're talking about belonging, about home and the homeland. Can you tell us what belonging means to you? In terms of belonging, I think every person should have something they belong to. It could be your country, for example. It could be a house. It could be a heritage. It could be a special person. To me, these things represent belonging. Before we started, you drew a map of home. Can you explain your map to us and tell us what you think of when you hear the word home? What I have here is the entrance to the house, the rooms, and all the details. Even though I left our home in Syria when I was young, I still remember everything. For example, I drew the outside entranceway. We would come back from school and ring the bell here. Our mom would be the one who opens the door. Right next to the door on the inside is my sister's room. Next to it is my parents' parents' room. Then in the middle is the living area that we all gather in. There's a TV and everything. Then there's the room that connects to the kitchen. And just outside of that is the balcony. Again, I left when I was very young, but the house has details that I truly can't ever forget because it was my childhood and it was my country. When it's something that's part of your country, you just can't forget it. Wherever you go, it's home. Even if you become a citizen in a new country and start to build a life, it won't ever be the same as home. In the end, your country is always something else. And where is this house located? In Damascus, in the countryside. In the Damascus countryside. And how old were you when you lived in this home? I lived in this house for less than a year. It was about seven months. But the thing that I really remember about this house is that it gave us a hard time until it was ready. It took about four years to finish construction and to be livable. But after the wait, we lived in it and grew up there. And at the same time, it was our family home. My entire family all lived under that roof. So you left this house 12 years ago. Can you tell us about your journey from Damascus or maybe from Idlib first to Damascus, then to Istanbul? What has your journey been like the past 12 years? My journey has been very, very dangerous because of the fact that my father was working in political journalism. In 2011, because my dad's work, we really couldn't stay in the country. We were originally in the Idlib countryside, an area that was against the regime. But at the time we were in Damascus, when we came to leave, my father had a journalist card. So if by chance anyone had stopped us and found that out, it probably would have been the end for him. We encountered a lot of roadblocks and hurdles and challenges on the journey over. There were bombs over us and bullets around us. So much so that a bullet actually hit our car. We were around Aleppo, but the road was very dangerous. This was 2011 and right at the start of the revolution. But we took the journey because it wasn't safe for my father to stay in the country. Even the town that we were living in was under siege for 13 days. On day 13, that's when we were able to finally leave. After we left the area, our town was basically just like Ghouta for three, four, five years. People practically died of hunger. There were chemical weapon attacks. So we barely made it, but we left at exactly the right time. Our plan was to stay in Idlib for a month or two 
and go back home. But we ended up staying for five months. Those are the only five months I ever lived in Italy. Otherwise, I would only visit here and there. Then there became a lot of bombing in the area. One time, I was asleep on the balcony and the shelling of the bomb literally fell right next to me. There was a rock that stopped it. Had it not been there, I wouldn't be here. When my father saw the severity of the situation, he knew we had to leave. We had our passports, so we fled to Turkey and entered legally. We lived in Reyhanli from about 2011 to 2020. At that point, my father was getting old and he couldn't really move around. So we moved to Istanbul to get him a better job. And I've been in Istanbul since. I'm even talking to you from Istanbul now. This sounds like a really hard journey and it sounds like you faced some really harsh situations. Do you think of these difficulties that you lived through in Syria as a young boy in school? I mean, you were really young when you came from Syria to Turkey. Did you encounter any further difficulties in getting used to life here in Turkey? Difficulties are inevitable. When I first came here, I knew I had to master the language. I knew I could get by between my English and Arabic skills, but it wouldn't be the same as speaking the language that everyone used here. The Turkish language is really hard because of its pronunciation. I think you can learn French and English much easier, but Turkish pronunciation is really difficult. So much so that when you learn Turkish, you have a hard time pronouncing English afterwards. But in terms of school performance, I wasn't lazy or anything. I first started in an Arabic school, so I didn't face any trouble. But when I moved to a Turkish school, I really stepped up. I started taking accelerator language courses to keep up with everyone else. One thing that was difficult was assimilating with the community. Obviously, when you move from country to country, there will be tough times. But feeling a part of the community was by far the hardest. You don't know the culture. You don't understand what's going on. So you started with an Arabic curriculum in Syria, then an Arabic curriculum in Turkey, then a Turkish curriculum. Then you apply to university where you need both English and Turkish. It sounds like a lot. Even at Karam House, you were both in the Reyhanli House and the Istanbul Karam House. Can you share your experience with us? My time at Karam House really benefited me. I was able to explore different academic subjects while meeting new people. And it was at the age when you're learning about life and about yourself. We had the opportunity to learn from people from various backgrounds and grow as individuals. I also learned so many new programs like Rhino and Arduino. I got to the point where I could go downstairs and use the laser cutter on my own. After graduating, I visited my friend at the factory where he worked and found that they had a laser cutter just like the one at Karam House, and they were doing work similar to what I was doing too. I basically had all the experience. Can you tell us about a project that you worked on that meant a lot to you? There was a studio in which we pretended to encounter a young child who learned both good and bad habits. We used light to portray how when learning bad habits and being in an unhealthy environment triggers a chain reaction of negative output. And on the flip side, allowing children to acquire positive habits in a healthy environment actually creates a chance of giving back to the community. I attended the studio with my sister, and although it was challenging, 
We had a great time. I have some rapid-fire questions for you now. First question, complete the sentence. Home is... Home is the homeland. Home is belonging. Home is where the family is. Home is everything. If you were to leave home right now with a chance that you might not come back, what would you take with you? I don't think there's anything I can really feel connected to. I've lost a lot of things and learned to live without them. What matters to me is my health and the people that I love. That's the truth. I'm not really connected to anything. Thanks for listening to Belongings. I'm your host, Lina Sergi Attar. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it to be meaningful. This episode of Belongings was produced by Rama Majzoub and Noor Al-Ghrawi. Episode researched by Ghania Chowdhury. Podcast artwork by Suleiman Faour. Music is Inni Mneeh by Mashru' Layla. Please follow, rate, and review Belongings wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Belongings on Instagram at Belongings Podcast. If you would like to support building a sense of belonging, community, and well-being for refugee youth, please visit karamfoundation.org. Thank you, everyone. See you next time.